Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hey everyone, and welcome to Exilic, and thank you for joining us today on this Membership Sunday. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are kicking off a brand new sermon series on the book of Isaiah that we are calling The King of Justice Who Redeems. And there are two reasons why we are gonna be camping out in Isaiah for the rest of this summer. The first reason is because uh, sometimes as far as our preaching goes, we preach topically. And so we've uh, done a sermon series on how to process our feelings during COVID-19. We just finished a sermon series on our habits uh, and we did a sermon on race. So sometimes we preach topically, but other times when it comes to our preaching, we preach through whole books of the Bible. So earlier this year, we preached through 1 Corinthians. In the fall, we preached through the Song of Songs. And starting today, for the rest of the summer, we're going to be camping out in the book of Isaiah. And part of the reason why we do this is so that you have a more cohesive understanding of what each book of the Bible is about. And hopefully, as you have a more cohesive understanding of what each book of the Bible is about, you'll have a more cohesive understanding of what the entire Bible is about. The second reason why we're doing this sermon series on Isaiah is because one of the main themes in the book of Isaiah is the theme of justice. And in light of everything that is happening in our society at large today, it's really paramount for us to understand how God himself feels about justice. And so the question is, how does he feel about justice? And so if you take a look with me at Isaiah 61, 8, this is what God tells the prophet Isaiah. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Notice here in this verse, uh, God doesn't say that he just likes justice, but he actually says that he loves justice. Now, there's a lot of things that I love. Um, I love a good cup of coffee. I love a nice cigar. I love sports. I love surfing. I love a good dessert. There are lots of things that I love, but it would never dawn on me to say that I love justice. And yet when we take a look at this verse, God says that he loves justice. And by implication, of course, that means that he hates injustice. 
And whenever two people are in a relationship together, what ends up happening is that you begin to love the things that they love and you begin to hate the things that they hate. And similarly, if we are to be in a healthy relationship with God, we are to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. And so what that means is that for us, we too are called to be a people that love justice and we are called to be a people that hate injustice. And so the question that I want us to uh, examine today is this, where does God's love for justice ultimately stem from? Why does he care so much about it? And as we take a look at our text today, I want to make the case that God's love for justice ultimately stems from his holiness. And so take a look with me at verse 1a again, as Isaiah has this vision of God. And in the beginning of verse 1, Isaiah says this, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now let me stop right there. Who is King Uzziah? Well, King Uzziah was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. He reigned for 52 years in the kingdom of Judah, and his, his fame and all of his accomplishments were so well known that his fame actually spread to the borders of Egypt. Now, keep in mind, this is pre-internet, pre-social media. And so the fact that Uzziah's fame spread to another country, I mean, this is as viral as it gets uh, for back in that time. And so if there was ever a top 10 list for uh, the kings of Israel, the greatest kings in Israel, uh, for both Israel and Judah, Uzziah would have easily been in the top 10 list. And yet take a look with me at what 2 Chronicles 26, 16 also says about Uzziah. And it says, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And so God strikes Uzziah with leprosy and his leprosy would eventually take his life. And I think the reason why Isaiah mentions Uzziah is for at least two reasons. Number one, even the best of men are men at best. Even the best friends, uh, best spouses, best parents, best pastors, best politicians, even the best of men are men at best. Every single one of us is a mixed bag of both good and bad, both moral and immoral qualities about us. All of us are flawed to one degree or another. But I think the second reason why Isaiah mentions Uzziah is because in the year King Uzziah died. And so not only are the best of men men at best, but the best of men are also mortal at best. And so no matter how powerful you might be, how wealthy you might be, how intelligent you might be, how resourceful you might be, even the best of us, we are all mortal at best. Uh, I think Ben Franklin said it best when he said that there are only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And so even in the midst of all the devastation that COVID-19 has caused around the world, it really hasn't raised the death rate because the death rate has always been one death for every one person. And just as King Uzziah eventually died, one day you will die and one day I will die as well. But notice that Isaiah doesn't stop right here, but his vision continues because the rest of verse 1 says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Even though Uzziah is dead, what Isaiah is saying is that God is still alive. 
He's not mortal, but he's immortal, and he is high and exalted. And what he's saying here by that is that God's power, his power and authority is high and exalted. It is above all other earthly powers and authority. And he says that he is seated on a throne. He's not sitting on a bar stool. He's not sitting on an office chair, but he's seated on a throne, which signifies his both regal and royal nature that he is in charge of all things. And he goes on by saying that the train of God's robe fills the entire temple. Uh, this past week, I did my second quarantine wedding, and sometimes a bride will wear a wedding dress with a train, and that train is what, sometimes four, maybe five or six feet. And when someone wears a train, it really signifies, or someone has a train, it really signifies their importance, uh, their, their, their value and their worth. Take a look at what Isaiah is saying, is here, uh, saying here. God, the train of God's robe fills the entire temple. It's not four or five feet, but it fills the entire temple. And in the case of Solomon's temple that he built, it was the length of two NBA basketball courts, the full court length, two of them, and the width of one NBA basketball court. And Isaiah says that the train of God's robe fills that entire temple, signifying his value, his worth, and his importance. And I have to say that in the midst of all the, the, the craziness that is happening right now in our world because of this COVID-19 disease, and in the midst of all the division that is happening uh, in our nation right now, I cannot tell you how comforting uh, Isaiah 6 has been for me. The fact that God is alive, the fact that he is high and exalted, the fact that he's still seated on his throne means that he's still in charge of all things, that he still has command of all things, that he hasn't lost control of the situation whatsoever. I cannot tell you how comforting this vision has been for me. But the vision continues because in verse two and three, it says this, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know what's so interesting about these verses is that these seraphim or angels, they were sinless themselves. And yet here they are shielding their eyes and covering their feet because they are next to the brilliance and glory of God. And as they're shielding their eyes, what they're crying out is that God is holy, holy, holy. You know, there's only one attribute of God that is used to the third degree. Scripture never says that God is love, love, love. It never says that God is just, just, just. But it does say that God is holy, holy, holy. John Calvin says that the fact that they're saying God is holy three times indirectly is really pointing to God's tri-personal nature, that God the Father is holy, God the Son, Jesus is holy, and of course the Holy Spirit is also holy. So the question now is, what does the word holy mean? Well, I think on the one hand, it's referring to God's ethical purity. He is righteous. He is morally pure, unlike us. But the second thing that the word holy means is also God's set-apartness. He's distinct and he's different from us. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, pots and pans were sometimes declared holy because they were set apart for temple use. Your fine china, it's holy 
because it's set apart for special and fancy dinners. Uh, the ground that Moses was on when he saw the burning bush, that ground was declared holy because it was set apart. It was different from all other grounds. And so the fact that these angels are saying that God is holy, 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 what they're pointing to the fact is God is different, different, different from all the rest of us. He is set apart. He is distinct. And so unlike King Uzziah, who was immoral and also mortal, God the King is perfectly moral and he is immortal. He is set apart and distinct uh, from every one of us. And when Isaiah has this vision of who God is, this is how he responds. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so when Isaiah sees this vision of God, he doesn't cry out, wow, but he actually cries out, woe, and not W-O-A-H, but W-O-E. Woe is me, I am ruined, I am undone. You know what it means to be undone? It means to be torn apart from your limbs. He's ruined, and the reason why Isaiah says that he is ruined is because he is a man of unclean lips. And what I find so fascinating about this part of the story is that a prophet was a mouthpiece of God. The most important part of a prophet's body was their, was their lips. The most important part of a soccer player's body is their feet, or pianist's body is their hands. The most important part of a prophet's body was their lips. It was the one redemptive part of their body, and yet, Isaiah is saying that even his lips are tarnished, even his lips are unclean. And I'm not sure if his lips were unclean because Isaiah was a type that was reckless with his words, careless with his words, gossip behind people's back, or if it's just because Isaiah is really pointing to his heart. Because scripture says that out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. But what I do know is this, juxtaposed next to God's cleanness, Isaiah recognizes his uncleanness. Juxtaposed next to God's holiness, Isaiah recognizes his own unholiness and depravity. And God's holiness is crucial to understand if we're going to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. So for example, how do we know how long a meter is? How do we know how much a kilogram weighs? In and of itself, a meter is nothing. In and of itself, a kilogram is nothing. We only know how long a meter is and how much a kilogram weighs because it's based upon the metric system. And similarly, how do we know what is good? How do we know what is bad? In and of itself, it's nothing. But if it's based upon some kind of moral system or standard, that's how we can differentiate what is good and what is bad, what is right from what is wrong. Now, here's a question. Where did this moral system come from? It couldn't have just come from an amoral universe so where did our understanding of morality come from? It ultimately stems from God's holiness, the fact that God himself is moral. That's how we differentiate between the two. And juxtaposed next to God's holiness, Isaiah has a profound awareness of his uncleanness, of his unrighteousness, of his lack of holiness. And my question to us today is, just as Isaiah realizes the depths of his depravity, do we recognize the depths of our own depravity? 
In the 16th century, uh, prior to becoming the face of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. And one of the things that he did was he would confess his sins to uh, uh, his confessor, Johann von Staupitz. And what's so funny, humorous about the story is that, and tragic at the same time, is that Luther would go to his confessor, von Staupitz, up to six hours per day confessing all of his sins. And at a certain point, uh, Johann von Staupitz was sort of annoyed, and he said to Luther, Luther, it's almost as though you think every fart is a sin. You think everything is a sin. But for Luther, his whole dilemma was this. How does an unholy man, how does an un unholy person stand before a holy God? And he was like, I, I can't. And keep in mind that Luther is saying this as a monk, a monastic monk. He's not saying this as an Adolf Hitler or a, a Pol Pot. He's saying this as a monastic monk. How can I stand before a holy God? He recognized the depths of his depravity. Isaiah recognized the depths of his depravity. My question to you today is this. Do you recognize the depths of your depravity in light of a holy God? You know, one of the things that I have been repenting of a lot this season is the fact that I feel like I'm playing catch up, uh, learning about things regarding race and injustice. And a part of the reason why I feel like I'm playing catch up is because I'm learning so much. And a part of the reason why I'm learning so much is because in the past, I chose not to pay enough attention or I chose to look away or ignore the things that I should have been paying attention to. And a part of the reason why I chose not to pay enough attention to it is because I could afford not to because of my privilege, because those things did not bother me as much as it did other, uh, 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 other people. And so one of the things that I have been repenting of is uh, my, my, my lack of awareness and the fact that I'm playing catch up to things that should have mattered to me more. And when God, through his Holy Spirit, sort of convicts us of our sin and excavates all the impurities and the subterranean levels of our hearts, it hurts like crazy. But even though it hurts like crazy, it is the best thing for us, and it is actually the mark of true maturation and growth. Like what Charles Spurgeon said when he said, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. Isaiah recognized his unholiness and his flaws. And my question to you today is, do you recognize your unholiness and your flaws? Until you see the depths of your depravity, you will never recognize the depths of God's love for you. Until you see your own sin, clearly you will never recognize your need for a savior for your sins. But as we take a look at Isaiah, he not only saw the depths of his sins, but he saw the depths of God's love, which is why his woe eventually becomes a wow as he takes a look at God's splendor. And so in verse six, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In the Bible, fire almost always signifies judgment and wrath. 
But here in this verse, it signifies forgiveness because an angel takes tongs, picks up this fiery coal, sears it on Isaiah's unclean lips, and his guilt is taken away and his sins are atoned for. So the question is, how does this fiery coal take away our guilt and our sins? How does the concept of forgiveness exactly work in Christianity? Well, in 2015, Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, walked into a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina, that happened to be having a Bible study. He shot and killed nine of the people there and injured one other person. Now, if Christian, as Christians, if we were to say, well, the Christian thing is to show grace and forgiveness, and that's what we should do, that would be a great perversion and distortion of the very character of God. Do you know why? Because God loves justice. And justice and judgment was shown to Dylan Roof in the courts of South Carolina. But you know what? Even if it wasn't, he would never escape the justice and judgment of the heavenly courtroom of God. Now, contrary to what Karl Marx once said when he said that religion is the opium of the people, you know what the real opium of the people today is? The real opium of the people is the belief that we don't think that there's any accountability for our actions after we die. But if God is immortal and he's seated on high, there is accountability for our actions even after we die. Now that is both awesome in the sense that justice will always prevail, justice will always be meted out, but that is terrifying in the sense that all of us fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that even if we hate someone, it's like we've murdered them. And that means that we too are held accountable. God never overlooks our sin and just immediately runs to forgiveness. He doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin and just shows us mercy. He can't turn a blind eye to our sins because he's 100% just. But the good news of Christianity is that the story of Christianity, the story of the gospel is not just about justice and judgment, but the story of the gospel is about the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's on the cross where we see justice and mercy kiss together. We see justice on the one hand because Jesus Christ is that fiery coal from the altar. He is the man that hung on the altar in our place. And his sentence was not life in jail or the electric chair, but it was the wrath of God that was being poured upon him. He experienced an eternity in hell on those six hours on the cross. How that spiritually happens, I don't know. But he bore the weight of God's wrath in our place, the sentence we deserved. The justice we deserved, he took in our place. And as a result of that, what we get is freedom and forgiveness. It is because of this powerful concept of forgiveness and the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment that this, this community in this church in South Carolina was able to superhumanly grant forgiveness to a man that did not deserve it. But you know what the tragedy of this story is? He never accepted their forgiveness. And my question to you today is that God grants you forgiveness for all of your sins, for all that you've done. You know, we, we live in a cancel culture. One big mistake and you're done. But in the kingdom of God, there is no cancel culture. Everyone gets a second, third, fourth, fifth chance. There's always hope. There's always reconciliation. There's always... Our guilt can always be taken away. 
But will you accept it? Will you receive it? Or will you reject it? I know that there are so many of you that are skeptical and, and are seeking and investigating the truth in our community. And one of the things that I want you to know today is that this forgiveness of sins, no matter what you have done, is freely offered to you because Jesus paid the price that we deserved. And all of your sins can be assuaged and atoned for. And for those of you who are Christians in our community, how does Isaiah's vision end? After he sees this amazing vision of God, Isaiah responds by saying, here am I, send me. In other words, whenever God brings us into a relationship with himself, he sends us out. He boomerangs us in, and then he boomerangs us out. We are called to be a salt and light wherever God has sent us. So the question is, where has God sent you, and are you being a salt and light? So let me just close with this. Um, my wife Hannah works at LinkedIn, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is because uh, one of the things that she does with her team, one of the things that she started with two, two other members of her team was uh, a conversation called Let's Talk, uh, where they meet every other week uh, with the entire team. And they started this thing called Let's Talk, where they talk about um, racism and injustice. And uh, so this coming week, they're watching conversations, uh, uncomfortable conversations with a black man, which I highly recommend to you. And they're going to have a discussion after they watch the video. Uh, the following uh, meeting, they're going to do a uh, anti-racist agenda where each of them as individuals can talk about how they individually can become more and more anti-racist because the opposite of racism, as Angela Davis would say, is not not being racist, but it's being anti-racist. And so they're going to talk about how Individually, they can become more and more anti-racist. And then thirdly, I think for their third meeting, they're going to talk about um, different terminology and definitions so that they can become more learned and educated in how to discourse about racism and injustice. And the reason why I'm mentioning all this is because her, her mission field is not in some uh, impoverished nation overseas, although there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But her, her mission field right now, where God has sent her, is a billion-dollar company that is one of the the most influential, most powerful tech companies in the world with some of the most powerful and influential people inside of it. And it is in this sector that she is trying to be a salt and light. And my question to you today is, where is God sending you? Where has he sent you? And are you being a salt and light in the midst of the darkness that is there? To love the things that he loves, to hate the things that he hates, and to bring that into every sphere where God has placed you. Where has God called you, and are you being a light? Let's pray together.